0: Hello and welcome to CityWire's Funds Fanatic Show. I'm Jeremy Gordon, Assistant Editor of Funds Insider at CityWire, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Jupiter's Dan Carter. Dan runs two funds investing in Japanese stocks, Jupiter Japan Income and Jupiter Japan Select, and more than a billion pounds of assets with colleague Mitesh Patel. Japan has, of course, been in the spotlight lately, with Tokyo hosting a unique pandemic Olympics and the Paralympics soon to follow. Meanwhile, the Japanese stock market is still often seen by turns as a neglected land of opportunity and something of a basket case. And I'm particularly interested to hear from Dan today, which it is, because I actually used to live in Japan for two years myself. Welcome, Dan.
1: Thank you very much, Jeremy. Nice to be on.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so so first question from me. One of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's aims was to turn Japan into what he called a normal country. I think that was more about geopolitics. But do you think Japan has become a more normal place to invest too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to be slightly careful to, to define what we're comparing Japan to and what we mean by normal, really. I mean, I think if, if you if you showed the investment landscape as it is now globally to anybody who is investing anywhere in the world before the global financial crisis, I, I don't think they would think very much about it was normal anyway so we, we've got to be a little bit careful about that but 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 I know what you mean I know what you mean I think that there are there are some peculiarities or some distinctive features about Japanese equity market and, and investing in japan which which remain but but in some ways Japan has become a little bit more like some western markets, so I think you know one way in which people often talk about this is with respect to corporate governance and uh, and the essentially the relationship between companies and shareholders, so I think that has kind of normalized in the sense that it 's become a little bit more like global best practice or at least it 's on that sort of journey. So I think the answer is the answer is 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 basically yes but but there are still some pretty peculiar things about investing in Japan that, that do make it quite a, a distinctive and we think quite interesting place to be
0: okay thanks dan well i 'm sure we can get on to some of those, but first uh, a, w- a word on the Olympic Games. The Olympics are much more about symbolism rather than having any, you know, real effect on a country's economy. But maybe it is also a natural point to check in. What's the coronavirus situation like in Japan at the moment, and is its economic recovery stalling?
1: Yeah. So, so, so again, it, it kind of really depends how you what you're comparing it to and, and how you define these things. So the headlines will tell you that it's a disaster. The headlines will tell you that. You know, the greatest waves of Japan are being put into um, uh, you know a situation of national emergency, um, and you know we all watch the Olympics with with no spectators in the stands, etc. And in terms of you know more positive cases coming through, and the Delta variant sort of really ripping through the country as it is ripping through the rest of the world, and certainly through Asia. You know th- that is true. That is true. So 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 I, d- I don't want to sort of sugarcoat this at all. Um, that is all happening. And one of the reasons why that's happening is because the, the vaccination program in Japan is, is, is now not slow, as in the rate of uptake is not low, but, but it started off very slowly. So actually, it's kind of retarded, really. It's it's just been held back a little bit. So that's not great. That's all the negative stuff. But, but actually, you know, again, when all of this is settled and we look back at Japan versus other you know, other countries, other regions, you know, even other major markets. I think Japan will look rather better than the headlines are suggesting now. So, if you look at the number of, of fatalities that are attributed to COVID since the pandemic began in Japan, we're just over fifteen thousand at the moment, um, and of course that number's climbing all of the time. But this is a population of one hundred and twenty million people. It's also extremely aged. So, you know, compare that to the UK and the situation we're in with you know i think more than 120,000 people have lost their lives to covid and a, and a younger and smaller population um japan doesn't look too bad right japan doesn't look too bad so so it's yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty nuanced it's a bit worrying and it is stalling the recovery a bit again japan just feels like it's been held back by by the the vaccination issue um but again you know what when this is all done and dusted and Well, who knows when that's going to be, and the extent to which that's going to be. But but when we look back on this, I I think Japan will actually come out of it okay. And it'll be timing issues, which we will, um, which will be attributing, you know, various rates of recovery to.
0: Okay, thanks, Dan. One other Olympics related thing I did want to ask about was, Japan has been or or had been enjoying a bit of a tourism surge in recent years. Now, I know you do have some property investments in the portfolio. I, I don't know if that's Something you've been playing, but I mean, what what do you think about that theme?
1: Yeah, you're right. Japan had been enjoying a, t- a tourism surge, and you know, as you said in the intro, you've you've been to Japan, and you spent some considerable time <laughs> there, and I've 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 been to Japan plenty of times, and and it's a fantastic place to visit, and and I think that more tourists. You should go, and, and this was coming from a very, very low base. But Japan was growing the number of tourists; it was welcoming. Um, you very considerably on a year-on-year basis, and it was a it was a, a government scheme as well. It was a it was a priority for the government to get more people to come to Japan and um, and enjoy everything that it has to offer, and clearly stimulate the economy a bit while they're there. But but it was, you know, I think it was kind of pushing on an open door because Japan's got a lot a lot to offer. The, the pandemic has clearly derailed that. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, it's essentially impossible to visit Japan at the moment. Um, but again, we, you know, we, we do hope that that's temporary, and and the you know the factors which were bringing more and more visitors to Japan, I think are, are pretty persistent. One is what Japan offers, and I don't think that's going to change. I mean, it's a you know fantastic culture and great cuisine and welcoming people and all of that sort of stuff, cultural service. So lots of things to to like about Japan, and also. You know, when we consider where those people were coming from, I mean, they were coming from all over the world, but they were sort of disproportionately coming from the rest of Asia mm. and in particular from China. So, so to an extent, it was a function of you know, a, a growing middle class in China with more money to spend, more willingness and ability to, to go out there and, and and visit places. So I think that will that will come back. With respect to the equity market and, and the way that that's, that was sort of playing out in portfolios, t- to be honest, it, it had kind of run its course a little bit before mm-hmm. you know, before the Olympics, really. That was something that was very, very meaningful as a actually fairly short-term driver of specific stock returns in I think kind of 2015, 2016, maybe that sort of era. Um and since then it has cooled. And one of the reasons it's cooled is purely because of of economics I mean, if you look at some you know something like like hotels yeah you know, there was a shortage of hotels in japan and particularly in tokyo and 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 you know they were a, a pretty good business when they when they started getting fuller and fuller and more and more people started spending money there but then of course what happens is that drags in capital and you've had an awful lot of new hotels developed and and old hotels knocked down and new ones built in their place yeah. in, in japan so you've had a you've had a supply increase as well so um, so, in terms of actually playing that out in portfolios, it hasn't really been hugely meaningful for the last couple of years. Um, but, but, it, but in general, it should be a supportive factor, bringing a little bit more, a little bit more, more consumption sort of verve to to the to the country as people do start coming back.
0: Okay, thank, thanks very much, Dan. So, let, let's turn a bit more closely to the the funds that you and Mitesh manage. Um, how, how long have you been running them, and what's the basic approach?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I started at Jupiter in 2008 um, and then took over responsibility for running uh, both of the, the Japan funds in 2016. Prior to that, I'd been running one of them since 2013. Mises joined me in 2016 as well, and we, we run the funds on a very collaborative basis. The, these funds are, as you all guess, they Japanese equity funds, but they're funds that are, are, are generating returns in excess... Of the overall market by combining two factors which pull in different directions. That is what we're trying to do. So these funds both have, and they are identical, by the way, on a line by line basis. They're identical to one another. Yeah. Um, That they have dual premium of of dividend yield, so higher dividend yield than the than the benchmark than the market average, uh, but also higher or faster underlying earnings growth than the average and. The point here really is that, that, that we are trying to be core. We are trying to be somewhere in the middle. We do have these biases, but we're not an extreme growth at any price fund. We're not a deep value fund. We are sitting somewhere in the middle. And if you're in the middle, what you're not doing is you're not selling a particular style and giving your clients as much of it as you possibly can. But what you must be doing, we think is finding pockets of inefficiency in the market and exploiting them to the benefit of your clients. So that's what we're trying to do. And the way that we do that is the framework that I just talked about. Because in a perfectly efficient market, you'd get a really good trade-off between growth and income. You wouldn't be able to put together a portfolio which is both higher yielding and faster growing than the market average. It it, it just wouldn't be possible. Um, But the fact that we can do suggests to us that we're we are getting more out of the market than it wants to give us and therefore sowing the seeds of, of, uh, positive investment performance. So that's really what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and you know, the, the different stocks that we have, uh, all play into that. They all play different roles and, and, you know, pulling the fund in, in those, those general directions that we want it to go. But, but the overall thesis is, you know, we want to outperform the market on the inputs. We want to get more of those good things in the fund, um, than, uh, than the market average. And if we do, then we'll get more of the good stuff out. We'll get more of the, that total return investment performance.
0: Yeah. I, I, can you share with us any, any recent buys that sort of encapsulate what you're looking for or any, any holdings which really show those themes working through?
1: Yeah. So as I said, we try and do this all the way across the portfolio. So you know, if you can imagine, if you want a fund which has uh, premium yields and premium growth, Obviously, you can try and find businesses that have both a premium yield and premium growth you know, in, that, in that particular individual company. Uh, and we do that. You know, we do that. If you look at companies like we've got a, an online mortgage broker, which is a very disruptive business in the financial sector called Aruhi. That, that's a business that is both growing faster than the average, um, but it's also on a, I don't know, a super premium yield as well. And there are reasons for that, of course. The reasons are, you know, people just instinctively don't like anything to do with housing in Japan, for example, right. and, and, and other things as well. But, but so there's always a reason why we end up with these situations in those particular stocks. But when we find them, we like to We like to get onto them. you know we do like to play those. another area in which we 've done that in the past is is technology, which you know is hugely in favor at the moment but has been hugely out of favor in the past and When we get whole sectors like that that we think through the cycle can generate really nice growth but are massively out of favor that that allows yields dividend yields to rise, so we can get businesses that we think you know on a mid to longer term basis are premium growth but at the same time a premium yielding. That said, th- th- there's not a population of companies in Japan which is sufficiently large to sustain a whole portfolio where you have both premium yield and premium growth in the same stock, or in the same, same company. So what we've got to do, therefore, is we've got to look at other, other ends of the yield spectrum. Right? We've got to mm-hmm. look at, at higher yielding companies that you would expect to have no or very, very limited growth, and for which actually there is much more meaningful growth than you would expect. So, a company like Roland, for example. So, Roland—I don't know if you or any of the listeners are, are, are musicians, but you know, the electronic musical instrument company makes, right, of um, yeah, makes makes keyboards and and electric pianos and electric drums and also Boss effects pedals for for electric guitars, things like that. Um, that's a business that it listed at the back end of last year, and we participated in that. We think that's a business that can grow you know, easily in in the mid to higher single digits in the midterm, right? That's a business that we think can generate profit growth of six, seven, maybe 8%. And, and actually it's doing a little bit better than that at the moment. Um, but when that came to the market, it was on a yield of more than 3%. And for 3% yielders in Japan, y- you just don't find six, seven, eight percent growers. You find mm. growers at one or 2% at best um, and often considerably lower. So, So trying to, you know, t- trying to get, Conspicuously high growth for the amount of yield is something we try and do, and then the other thing that we try and do is try and find businesses which have, you know, conspicuously high yield for the amount of growth. You know, even if the amount of of yield is not in and of itself really, really high. So again, if we can find businesses that are growing, you know, not five, six, seven percent, but are growing on a mid-teens number, mid-teens percentage, something like that, then we're we're going to be looking to. We're going to be looking to 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 buy those when their yields are higher than you'd think. I.e., the high the, the yields should be more or less zero, and they're not. They're one, one and a half percent, something like that. So yeah, so so there there are there are a number of different ways in which we look to achieve this portfolio level end, and um, and there's just a couple of couple of names that that we've been participating in 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 really in recent months or or years that have that have helped to do that.
0: Okay, thank, thanks very much, Dan. And, well, we, we kind of touched on a bit, but something I'd like to ask in a way, so I don't, don't forget to ask it. There are a lot of varying perceptions about Japan. Like, alternatively, uh, you know, there are some very high-tech companies. It's got this amazing manufacturing base. People say it's this kind of deep value area. But we, why should prospective investors look at Japan? What, you know, what, what's the essential thing there?
1: I mean, fr- from our perspective, from our- Point of view, um, yeah, As active investors, the thing that we like about it the most is actually entirely divorced from all of those things that you mentioned. Yeah. Entirely divorced from all of the sort of macro stuff. I and mean, I'll get onto that in a second. Um, but the thing that we like about it the most is, is that it's really, really inefficient. There's a massive amount of opportunity here, and when we talk about opportunity, we are really talking about inefficiency. When we look at the way that we run money and the way that I think you know, in general, active managers can add value. It is it is through finding pockets of inefficiency. And if you've got a market which is, you know, absolutely, you know, as 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 rational as you can possibly get and crawled over by sell-side research analysts and, and you know, really well broke and very well known and very well covered where, you know, price discovery is very rapid, then frankly, you've got a really, really tough job on your hands trying to outperform it. You know, I think that's a terrible place to invest. So that's why you know, I don't want to do the U.S. down, but I, I think the U.S. must be a really difficult place to invest. And, and and Japan is kind of the antithesis of that. You've got a massive population of companies. You've got three and a half thousand, if not more, listed companies in Japan. Many of them are very, very small. But, but you know, even for a, a billion pound fund or strategy like ours, you know, we can invest in probably... Anything up to fifteen hundred different companies—that very, very large population of companies. So, very many of them are, are, frankly, just not that well known. And there are lots and lots of other things that are playing into the market um, and increasing that sort of ambient level of inefficiency. So, so if you're a, you know, if you're if you're an active manager, I think Japan is is somewhere to be, you know, somewhere to be enjoyed, right? There's a huge amounts yeah. of opportunity. You you got to go out there and, and, and take it. I, I think. I think from, a, from an absolute return perspective, which is the perspective that, that many clients still look at this um, from, which I think is, is perfectly reasonable, you know, why, you know, why bother with Japan? Like, sure, maybe you think you can outperform it over time because of the, the inefficiency, but, but what about the, you know, the average level of the market? Is that going to be any good or, or are you going to be outperforming something that's going to be, going, to be do- going down the tubes? Well, I think there's a few things to bear in mind there. I think on a very short-term basis, um, Japan does look like a bit of a coiled spring. And we talked about this earlier on in the, in, in the, the discussion, the, that Japan has been held back in its recovery from COVID. And you can see that in the equity market as well. So Japan has underperformed most major markets on a year-to-date basis, which you know, is, is frustrating but at the same time, we think sows the seeds for, for a catch-up, right? So, so when Japan does normalize, when consumption, you know, does rally back from its current suppressed level, now the Olympics are out of the way, or at least, um, or at least uh, you know, we're still we're still going to do the Paralympics, of course. But but when that whole sort of festival of sport is over and done with, the political imperative for the government to be very, very tight on restrictions will lift a little bit. And and when we look at when we look at, at consumption versus consumer confidence, right, how much is actually being spent versus how much consumers want to spend, there's a big gap there. So consumers do want to spend more. And when they can, when they're allowed to, we think they will. So I think that there's a, there's a short-term rally on the way. Mm. Um, we have to, all sorts of things can come through and, and derail that, so we have to be... It has to be humble when we say that sort of thing. But, but I think there are reasons to believe that things will look brighter on a short-term level you know, in, in three, six, nine months' time than they do now for, the, for those reasons. And then on a longer-term yes. basis, really that's when we have to think about the changes which are going on within the Japanese corporate sector. And these mm. aren't new changes. I'm not really talking about inflections, or if I am, they're inflections that have already happened. You know, We're talking about trends that have been established for, for a little while we often talk about how Japan is, is perceived as being, as being really mean, as being a sort of mean place or a mean corporate sector that doesn't like shareholders. And at the same time, it's kind of, it, it's kind of really old, you know, and, and you know, we talked briefly about demographics earlier on. There's a, there's a grain of truth in that as well. And it's unprofitable, right? These are the yeah. things that people don't like. And all of these things actually are either you know, just not quite right or – are, you know, are, are, are creating conditions that are making it actually quite good for equity investors on a sort of perversely yeah. positive basis. So, so just really briefly to go through all of those, um, you know, Japan is is mean. Well, sure, it doesn't pay out as much uh, as some of the major developed markets, but that is on the rise, right? So total payout ratios for, for Japan are, are, are going up, and certainly were going up pre-pandemic. And we yeah. expect... You know the pe- the pressure on the corporate sector to continue to increase, both from people like us, but also from the government in Japan, to try and make sure that that is that is the case. So this is this is a wind that is going to be on your back as an equity holder. So I think that's a yeah. good place to be. The, the other thing about. Um, about demographics, sure, absolutely. You know, Japan is an old place. And I think that in the mid to longer term, you know, notwithstanding what I said about the recovery and consumption, you know, after COVID, I think consumption is going to be under pressure in Japan because people are getting older and they spend less money, you know, as they go onto on to fixed incomes and, and they, you know, they become pensioners. Um, however, what that does is it structurally tightens the labour force. It means that labour goes from being a plentiful resource to a scarce one um and when you get a scarce resource like that it's it starts to become allocated around the corporate sector better so that pushes yep. profitability up right it seems odd it seems like a perverse you know bad news is good news sort of slightly orwellian sort of way of looking at it but but i think it's true and it's certainly been true over the last few years that that's forced the corporate sector to become more profitable uh, and that plays into the to the last point that i made that japan is coming from a relatively unprofitable position if you look at the uh, uh, Japanese profitability versus other major developed markets, it is low, but it's going up, structurally going up. So again, these are all, these are all, all trends, sort of mega trends, multi-year mega trends. Yes. And you can you can have them if you want. You know, if you invest in Japan, you can have these. That's not to say there aren't other issues, um, but those mega trends I think are pretty powerful. And yes. therefore, yeah, I think I think people should be interested in Japan.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Dan. And on the point about returns to shareholders, uh, you know, compared to some other markets, companies have been more more reluctant to raise their dividends or, or improve returns through share buybacks. But as you say, that that is a trend where we're seeing movement. Are, are there any examples in the portfolio where, you know, companies have started to return a lot more to shareholders?
1: Yeah, we've we've seen we've seen a number of these. Um, we've seen a number of them. I mean. <sighs> A couple that I, I particularly mention are coming from a relatively low base. Yeah. So you know we have a, a position in a uh, an electronic connector company called Iriso Electronics, and and that you know several years ago, a handful of years ago, when we when we initially took the position, had a had a payout ratio which was very very low. It was in the teens. It was unjustifiably low. And this is a business that, quite frankly, you know, it didn't hate shareholders at all. It had just Made an enormous amount of money, it had gone through a period of profitability, which was you know very pleasurable for them to go through i 'm sure but but it sort of caught them by surprise you know the The emergence of electric vehicles, the increase in the electronic content of um, of cars you know had yeah. meant that there was a demand boost for, for what they did and, and more and more profits poured into into that that company and they were just pretty old fashioned and they had a, a relatively fixed um, dividend policy, which meant that their payout ratio went down and down and down, and their cash position went up and up and up. And we engaged with that business uh, an right. awful lot. Um, and this is something we do continually, actually, where we think that there are businesses which um, which should be paying out more to shareholders. We will be engaging with them to try and, and get them to do so. But, but to do that, you need to do it in a, a non-cynical fashion. Right. I mean, if you're, if you're a shareholder and you're just going and being and getting your begging bowl out and, and, and totally ignoring all stakeholders, all other stakeholders, then I think that there is a risk that you get dismissed, certainly in Japan. So so an argument, and I think it's often a, a legitimate argument, needs to be made that this is the best thing for the business to be to be run on a more efficient basis, you know, from the perspective of, of capital, Um so we did that there, uh, and they have increased their their payout ratio meaningfully. Uh, another one, actually, a very similar story is is a company called Hazama Ando, and uh, and that's that narrative is sort of emboldened a little bit because you know we are not the only um, the only shareholder that is doing that, and yeah. and Hazama Ando has become has become really a target for a handful of activist investors. We don't consider ourselves activists, by the way. We are highly engaged, very active investors. But I don't I don't think we're activist investors. We're not specifically seeking out these kinds of names throughout the whole of the portfolio and, and and using this as the as the core reason for why we think we're going to outperform in the way that activists do. But but we are very, very engaged and other people are starting to try and urge companies to move in this same direction so again the same sort of story with Hazamando. i mean they've that they, they started off with a very very low payout ratio and they've, they've come to have a kind of normal payout ratio which again isn't enough doesn't mean that we stop um and they can do an awful lot more because again they've got huge huge cash on the balance sheet which is you know is not rare in japan um but they can and, and, we, and we hope will do will do more
0: yeah okay thanks very much dan before before we move on to maybe talk about uh, a few more companies in the portfolio in depth. Uh, I just wanted, wanted to ask, uh, you know, h- how you got, got into managing Japanese equities in the first place? Because I think, like me, you, you have a bit of an affinity with Japan.
1: Uh, yeah, it looks a bit odd, doesn't it? It, it does look a bit <laughs> odd. It does seem like a strange thing, strange thing to, to dedicate one's career to. But I, I think like a lot of these things, it really depends upon, upon both motivation and opportunity, so the first mm. thing on, on, on opportunity is, you know, I started my career um, at a fund management house in Scotland, which, which had a pretty well-established and quite interesting Japanese equity team. Mm. Um, I actually started my career doing UK equity, large cap UK equities. So there was a bit of a push factor because UK large cap equities, I've got to be careful because some of my colleagues cover them, but, um, you know, it can be pretty dry.
0: Right, you know, I was, I was writing
1: reports on British Plasterboard and, and other companies like that, and and it wasn't it wasn't quite as as thrilling as as I'd hoped it was going to be, uh, and there was an opportunity to to rotate round onto an, an interesting team where clearly there were lots and lots of you know fascinating companies about which I think you know people knew people knew the brands including me, but but didn't really understand really very much about so so that was one thing, um, but then the, the you know the the motivation. Um, I think you can look back, and there's there's almost always some sort of, you know, personal hinterland um, that that skews the probabilities of moving one way or another. And, and for for Japan, it's often you know manga or anime or something like mm. that. People are really into that, or or it's martial arts, right? People are dead into martial arts, and that drags them towards Japan. And my, my yeah. sport is judo. Right, judo is the thing that that I've spent you know a significant chunk of my life um, spending way way too much time for for far too little return doing. Um, <laughs> but I do I do love it, and I've loved it for a very long time. So so that always made Japan a really interesting place for me. I, I had some degree of cultural affiliation or or interest at the very least so 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 when it when it when it came around that that i had the opportunity to essentially choose you know which market that i want to go and experience next you know japan was one that i really wanted to to go and try and then having done it again it's it's just the it's just it's the the diversity of companies that you can invest in and look at and and the extent to which you can really get ahead of it and you can you can know more about it than other people in a relatively short period of time. You know, that's a, that's a, a really thrilling thing for somebody who's relatively new to the, yeah. to the, to the game to be able to do. And in Japan, you can, you can do that.
0: Yeah. Well, well thanks Dan. That's a very, very interesting backstory. Um, so kind of, well, co- coming back onto the fund and what you've been doing more recently um, you know, I think we should point out the fund's performance has been, been strong in the last five years uh, to the end of July, returned about sixty-one percent versus forty-four percent for the top X topics, which is kind of Japanese equivalent of the FTSE all share. And you mentioned your process of looking for these inefficiencies, and uh, the tech sector had been been one place where, where you'd found a lot of that. Uh, I think that's probably not the case today. Valuations have gone up a lot. Has has that been forcing you to be more creative in general?
1: Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Uh, I think we've had to be really creative, especially over the last couple of years, because you're right, the tech sector is a great example of this. But it's not the only example. You know, there are lots of other, there are lots of other, you know, long runway, high-quality investment themes and high-quality businesses, which are, you know, utterly crawled all over by. Foreign investors, quite frankly. Nice. And foreign investors, you know, essentially, you know, are are, are the determinants of, of price in the Japanese equity market. So so when they get excited, that really does push up, push up valuations. Um, so you're right. As it has happened, we, we've had to become much more creative and we've been creative typically within themes rather than outside of themes. Um, so good example of that. I mean, you know, you, you, you mentioned tech and, and we do have a lower weighting to tech than we have in the past yeah. um but but even you know even even before lowering that weighting we were rotating considerably between positions so so one of the best performing positions that we have had in the portfolio over the last handful of years is a company called lasertech which essentially you know we bought as a small cap and sold as a large cap which is exactly the journey you want to go on as a as an investor um, this is a company which manufactures inspection devices for uh, mask blanks and patterned masks. Those essentially the, the the negatives which are used for printing chips onto silicon. Um, and we're no longer shareholders of that. You know, that's something that that really we thought became egregiously priced and expectations were running away with it, even though our expectations for it were still... You know, were pretty spectacular. Those that were implied by the market were even more spectacular. So, within that theme, you know, we looked around and and found other businesses that we thought were 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 exposed to the same sort of commercial opportunities. And that's really all we're talking about when when we talk about themes is commercial opportunities. You know, if 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 it's good for one company, it's often good for a number of companies. And one of the businesses that we found that was kind of similar to LesTech is a business called Geo. Which makes okay. multi-beam mask writers. So it's, a, it's 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 an oligopolist in the manufacture of, of multi-beam mask writers. And these are the the pieces of equipment which are used to pattern those masks that Laser Tech tests. So when generating um you know when generating those essentially those negatives, it's um you know it's 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 equipment made by Jill which is used to do that and. And this wasn't really very well covered because it's buried relatively deep in a in a microscope business. But but by you know going through the market with a pretty fine-tooth comb, you know, we were able to find that business. Again, I don't want to sound sort of too self-congratulatory about this, but but it's been on a pretty nice journey, right? Because, because other people have have realized that this is that this is to the benefit of this company as well as others. So so I think on on tech, I I, I don't want to suggest that we're entirely at the end of the line. But yeah. but the fact that we have reduced our weighting there d- does suggest, I think, that we've had quite a number of iterations within that sector of creativity. You know, trying to be more creative, more creative, more creative, more niche, more niche, more niche. And the risk with that, of course, is that is that in the search for um, inefficiency is, is that you just go smaller and smaller and smaller. And we've got to be very careful about doing that. You know, we, we, we do have a weighting towards small cap, but we don't want to be excessive about that. And so trying to find more creative large caps is something that we've spent an awful lot of time on in the last several months. And just, just to give you one, one example of that, which is kind of related to tech, but is certainly not a semiconductor production equipment company, is, is NEC, which, you know, somebody said to me the only thing Good that NEC has ever done is sponsor Everton in the nineteen, I guess it was nineteen nineties, <laughs> which seems seems a bit harsh, but but it, it does go to show that the NEC had fallen quite considerably out of favour with investors in Japan. It was seen as really old, really stayed, really unprofitable, and and again, you know, all of these things you know have a grain of truth to them. Um, but NEC has moved considerably out of the low profit areas of its business and and focused much more on. Um, on uh, it and software for domestic digital transformation and you know this links back to something that you said about japan being you know, really whizzy and high tech on one hand but but actually being quite old-fashioned in in other ways a japanese corporate sector in the way that it does its business as well as as well as the, the government can be really old-fashioned, but it is becoming much more modern, and it's spending a lot more money on, on software and other IT services to, to make that happen. NEC is one of the big um, facilitators of that, particularly for government. But it's also a business which is, um, which is helping build next-generation, so 5G uh, mobile networks and yeah. it's replacing huawei in developed markets because you know mm. for pretty obvious geopolitical reasons huawei has fallen well out of favor in maybe uh, in, in many major developed markets so so nec is stepping in so so there there are, there are this is a this is an area which was kind of generally interesting to investors but would not but those investors would would probably not have looked at this particular company because it had a bad rep quite frankly, I had a bad rep as being really old and stayed and unprofitable, but it's, yeah. it's, it's less old and it's less stayed and it's more profitable than it has been in the past. And, and again, you know, we talk about the, sort of the journey we want to go on, slightly cheesy, right? But, but, but it's, it, it is the way that we think about these things and, and, and NEC is starting on that journey, but it does take a degree of, of, of creativity because you know, the gold standard obvious plays on that you know, wouldn't be NEC. It would be something else, yeah. but it would be you know, hugely overpriced in our view and wouldn't offer much in the way of opportunity.
0: Thank you, Dan. Well, that, that, that's interesting. So a, a kind of you know, storied name of the past coming back to the fore. That leads me on to well, the last thing I want to ask about, really. There are some big names that everyone will recognize in, in the portfolio, um, and one of those is Toyota. Um, in fact, it's your your top holding. I think it's about a seven percent position uh, at the end of July. Uh, Bridgestone, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the world's largest manufacturer of tires uh, and lots of other auto parts, uh, is another top ten holding. You know what? 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 Why is that? What? You know what kind of state is the Japanese car industry in at the moment, and why are you backing those companies? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think we we've, we've got to be. We can break
0: listening. it down to Toyota yeah.
1: and Bridgestone, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's, to be honest, there there are common threads that run through them both, and and I, I you know I think I think Toyota because it's a it's a more technologically innovative company. I don't I certainly don't want to do do Bridgestone down, but but it is tires, right, rather than rather than anything else. Um, you know, Toyota is is a is a more interesting case study, I think. When we look at when we look at global autos, you know, as I said, we've got to be realistic. I think it's a I think it's a sort of Hail Mary to to really expect global auto volumes to grow very meaningfully from here. So what we need to do is we need to find businesses within that that are going to be, you know, that are going to survive, that are going to succeed, that are going to grow share, that are going to potentially Redefine what is meant by mobility uh-huh. um, because the nature of travel and traveling relatively short distances and traveling on a sort of personal basis, you know, we now think of jumping in our car and driving somewhere. you know if we're in the middle of a city, we might think of jumping in a taxi or an Uber or something like that. and, and that is that is very much more the way that that the world is is likely to move. You know we need to think about this in sort of broader mobility terms rather than just um you know certainly gas guzzling uh, cars and toyota has doesn't has has a kind of a pr problem you know it's a very big business and it is a you know it's got a stories history and, and all of the rest of it. it is venerable in very many different ways um, and for that it can be overlooked it can be presumed to be you know stayed and, and, and the, the antithesis of innovation and that it has you know, a huge amount of, of um, vested interest in maintaining the status quo, we would argue that the opposite is true, actually. If we look at the contribution that Toyota has made over the last 20 years to a transition to a lower carbon economy... And I'm not sure we were using exactly those terms, you know, 20 years ago. But but that is essentially what, yeah. what happened when, you know, when the Prius was launched. Um, you know, the number of of Priuses and, and other um, Toyota branded hybrid vehicles that have been sold over that period, I think, means that we can say that Toyota has done arguably more than perhaps any other company and, and certainly as much as most of the companies to try and ameliorate some of those growing um, environmental problems that, you know, we are now absolutely front and center. We think about a lot, but Toyota has been thinking about for some time. Mm. It, it gets criticized for that, almost for that, right? Because it's been successful in, in hybrids. The, the presumption is that the, the move away from hybrids will be, um, Will be suppressed, or, or will be you know, will be dragged back by Toyota. We we think that's not the case. Actually, we think that Toyota has has very good technology in in batteries. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of work on solid state batteries, which will make um, make batteries for EVs safer and and easier and better to use. Um, it's also done an enormous amount of R and D. Uh, in hydrogen, yeah. which you know a few years ago when when Toyota was talking about the Mirai so Mirai is is Japanese for for future
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the Mirai uh, model you know Toyota was a bit of a laughing stock right people thought that it was crazy um, but actually now much less so and and hydrogen is being seen as a more likely um, a more likely plausible longer term part of the propulsion mix, if that makes sense. So I think I think, you know, when we're investing in these sectors where domestic growth is very likely to be minimal, global growth even might well be minimal, then we have to look for innovation and where share can be taken. And and that's really where Toyota stands out. I I think it is in a really good is in a really good position. Of course, you know, there are There are short-term issues that Toyota and and all of the companies, you know, have to go through. Um, You know, whether that's you know chip shortage or um, other supply issues coming from from coronavirus pandemic in in Southeast Asia, etc. You know, those sorts of things are upon the pun. They are they are sort of speed bumps, right? They're bumps in the road. Mm -hmm. But but Toyota is really really well placed to to go through them, get on, past them, and. And really sort of prosper. So so yeah, there, there, there are big names in the portfolio, but there's always a, a, a mid to longer term reason why we think that, that that company will not only be still standing, but will actually be strengthening through the cycle rather than weakening.
0: Well, thank, thanks very much, Dan. That, that, that's very interesting. Um, you know, that that also seems to encapsulate quite a lot of what we've, we've talked through today. So maybe, maybe it's a good point to uh, wrap things up. Um, So, yeah, Dan, thank you very much again for joining me. Uh, It was a pleasure to talk to you and really interesting to learn more about your approach and investing in Japan.
1: Thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you. And the final thing to add from me is thank you very much for listening today. Please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts.